0: In 2021, we are surrounded by fake news. The internet has given idiots the platform they need to spout fake news to further their own cause, whether that be news networks, famous people, or just the local knobhead. It's not a modern invention, though. It's just been given a new name. I'm talking about hoaxes, which is a much better word for it. Across history, there have been hoaxes galore, with some being much more innocent than others. Today, we're going to find out about some of my favorites. I'm Natalie, this across the ages. We kick today's episode off with a piece of THE LORD! Have you ever spent time looking at artwork depicting the circumcision of Christ himself? Me neither. But it was absolutely necessary for research for this section. It seems to be a thing that people like to paint, but why? Well, it's the only piece of Jesus that the Bible said was removed from eight, di- eight day year old Jesus. Eight day year? Eight day old Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we could see the severed foreskin? Well, that's what 9th century people got treated to when it turned up around 800 CE, when King Charlemagne of the Franks presented it as a gift to Pope Leo III. Charlemagne claimed it had been given to him by an angel which was very generous of it. It really was a big deal for people of the Catholic faith, and it became an instant hit with people wanting to come and see it. The problem was that rival foreskins started showing up across Europe, with each church insisting that their foreskin was a real deal, and had church leaders come in to authenticate them. The debate went on for hundreds of years. In the 14th century St Bridget made it known that she received bits of foreskin from an angel which she put on her tongue, and it gave her orgasmic-like sensations. In 1421, Henry V sent for one of them, thinking that its sweet scent would help his wife, Catherine, to have an easy childbirth. In the 17th century, Catholic scholar Leo Allatius suggested that Jesus' foreskin had ascended to heaven at the same time as Christ and might have become the rings of Saturn. <laughs> In England, in 1726, medicine was different to how it is today. Just over 100 years earlier, the Pharmacopoeia Londonisensis, that's definitely how you say it, was published, which listed medical remedies which were used by doctors in the 17th and 18th centuries. The remedies included five varieties of urine, 14 of blood, as well as the saliva, sweat and fat, Turds of a goose, of a dog, of a goat, of pigeons, of swallows, of men, of women, mice, peacocks, hogs and heifers. Bleeding was also still used, as well as creating blisters to draw out illness and even blowing smoke up people's buttholes as a last resort to bring back the unconscious. When you put yourself in that medical mind frame, it's not too hard to believe how this next hoax took off. Mary Toft was a 25-year-old servant who was unfortunate enough to have a miscarriage. A month later though, Mary still looked pregnant. She went into labour and had her neighbour round to help her through the birth. Though what was going to come out, no one knew, and I don't think expected. It was reported that she gave birth to a liverless cat. What a liverless cat looks like, I don't know. Surely it just looks like a cat. Anywho, someone was like, this is all sorts of fucked up, someone go fetch the doctor. He visited Mary the next day and was presented with some animal parts that had come out of her parts. He attended the day after, and yet more animal parts had found their way out of her vagina most peculiar, right? This sounds like the longest labour ever because over the next month she kept pop, pop, popping out more animal bits and bobs, including a rabbit's head, some cat's legs and nine dead baby rabbits. The doctor was like, what is going on? And started writing letters to some famous surgeons and doctors, as well as the king's secretary. The king was like, what? And sent a couple of men to investigate. By now it had become a bit of a local sensation, and Mary was moved to Guildford, near where the doctor lived, so he could keep an eye on her. When the king's men arrived, she managed to smash out a few more rabbits right in front of them, and they were like, Oh my god! Some of the rabbits were sent to London and are dissected upon the order of the king. Poop was found inside the rabbits, which contained hay and corn, so they finally concluded that the rabbits could not have come from Mary. Mary claimed that her births were due to being startled by a rabbit, of course. One of the king's doctors, St Andre, was convinced that they were real because he'd seen it with his own eyes. Mary Toft was brought to Lacey's Bagneo, which is a bathhouse, in London's Leicester Fields, where she could be observed more closely. St Andre contacted a well-known midwife and anatomist, Dr James Douglas, and asked him to come to the Bagneo, the bathhouse, to observe Mary's rabbit births. A porter at the bathhouse was caught trying to sneak a rabbit into Mary Toft's room. Toft admitted after being threatened with invasive invasive surgical investigation that she had been shoving rabbits into her vagina and popping them out one by one. She kept trying to blame different people, including her mother-in-law and the initial doctor who attended. She was tried and charged with being a notorious and vile cheat and sent to Bridewell Prison for a few months, where, allegedly, she was exhibited to a large curious crowd by her warders. She was then released and faded into obscurity until she died in 1763. Mary Toft? More like Mary Tuft. (laughs) I'm not sorry. If you want to hear more about childbirth throughout history, I know a proper good podcast that covered it. Just kidding, it was me. Check out episodes 7 and 8 to hear about goose semen and chainsaws. I don't know how dramatic I can be with this next hoax because it's just too funny, but I will try my best. We're in London in 1762. And we've heard about a ghost that's scaring the shit out of people on Cock Lane. I do love ridiculous British street names. I'm going to take a second to share some with you before we dive into Cock Lane. There's Dick Place in Edinburgh, Crotch Crescent in Oxford, Spanker Lane in Derbyshire, Butthole Lane in Leicestershire, my hometown big up, and Titty Ho in Northamptonshire. (laughs) Honestly, the list goes on. I digress. Back to Cock Lane. William Kent married his wife Elizabeth, but unfortunately, she died in childbirth. Elizabeth's sister, Fanny, moved in to help him care for the baby, and their relationship became romantic. At the time, it was against the law to marry your deceased wife's sister because the church saw the sister as good as your own sibling, so that would be wrong. Anyway, they claimed to be married in all but law, calling themselves Mr and Mrs Kent. Well, William had lent money to the landlord of their house, a one Richard Parsons, who soon found out about their transgressions and he was like, you know what, pal, that 20 quid you lent me, not paying it back because you're like, well, immoral and that. William was obviously not happy about this and they fell out. While the Kents were away, Parsons' daughter stayed in the house and reported hearing weird-ass scratching noises and seeing a ghostly figure of a woman. Not long after, Fanny dies of smallpox. Kent moved out of the house while he sued the landlord for being a dick and Parsons' daughter moved into the property. By this point, the scratching and some knocking started in earnest and it was reported that the daughter started having fits while other spooky shit started happening too. It was determined that the knocks were from a ghost, obviously, and using a form of yes-no communications, they reported that it was the ghost of Fanny and she accused her husband of murdering her with arsenic poisoning. That escalated quickly. A Reverend Thomas Broughton visited the house and witnessed it and was like, yep, totally haunted, can confirm. A seance was done in the room where the ghost repeated the allegations against William by means of the knocking sound. The papers were lit for it and the crowd started showing up and they paid for tours around the house. The ghost became known as... (laughs) Scratching Fanny. (laughs) Shock horror, the daughter was knocking on wood hidden in her clothes. Parson wanted to fuck over Kent for suing him and decided to set up the whole thing. Parsons was put on trial and sentenced to two years imprisonment and three days in the pillory. His wife got one year in prison and their sneaky servant who helped out got six months hard labour. That was the end of Scratching Fanny, who haunted Cock Lane. (laughs) The next hoax hails from Australia. The creature we're talking about has no stomach has venomous spines, lives in rivers, uses gravel instead of teeth, has the body of a beaver and the bill of a duck. Hopefully you've clicked by now that the animal itself is the duck-billed platypus. Not a hope you idiot, I hear you say. No, of course it's not. But when the first specimen of the platypus made its way to England in the late 18th century, that's exactly what zoologists thought. It was quite popular at the time for Japanese and Chinese cultures to sew different creatures together for art, and I'll tell you about an example of this a little bit later. George Shaw, the zoologist at the British Museum, recorded in a scientific journal that it was impossible not to entertain some doubts as to the genuine nature of this animal, and to surmise that there might have been practised some arts of deception in its structure. Of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its conformation, exhibiting the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck engrafted on the head of a quadruped. More specimens started to arrive in England, and eventually they were like, OK, fine. His ability to lay eggs, however, wasn't discovered for another hundred years. <music> Mrs Tottenham of 54 Burner Street went to sleep on the 26th of November 1809 on a perfectly ordinary day and expected the next day to be just the same. At 5am the doorbell rang and was answered by her maid. It was a chimney sweep who said he had been asked to attend. The maid had no record of this so sent him away. Another sweep turned up before long. Then another, until no less than twelve sweeps had been turned away. This is getting ridiculous now, thought Mrs Tottenham. That was not the end of the ordeal, though. Next was a coalman, then a piano delivery, then a whole tribe of butchers came to deliver meat, clergymen came, solicitors showed up, there were deliveries of jewellery, cakes and furniture too, and goodness knows how many others. The tale goes that the street got so busy that no one else could pass, and even police officers that caught wind of the confusion could do nothing about the sheer number of tradesmen and deliverymen showing up on the street. The thought of it reminds me of that scene in Mary Poppins where Mr Banks is holding interviews for nannies and Mary Poppins comes in and blows them all up the street. If only she was there on that day. Alas. I suppose there is this is less of a hoax and more of a prank, but I found it funny enough to include anyway. A prankster called Theodore Hook, who sounds like an absolute bugger, was playing truth or dare, probably, and a friend dared him to make 54 Burner Street the most famous house in the city. We don't actually know why they targeted this house in particular, but some think that she must have pissed him off in some way, because Hook and his buddy spent the next six weeks sending out letters to every Tom, Dick and Harry, asking for deliveries and services, all to happen on the same day. Jackson's Oxford Journal concluded that it was the greatest hoax that has ever been heard of in this metropolis, and if its perpetrator was ever found, they should be punished for such despicable waggery. Whatever that means, but I don't think it means anything good. Hook himself was suspected, but never officially caught. He was a playwright, though, and in his play, Gilbert Gurney, one of his characters exclaims, What else made the effect in Burner Street? I am the man, he says. I sent pianofortes by dozen and coal wagons by scores 2,500 raspberry tarts from half a hundred pastry cooks. What a swat! say the word mermaid you're probably thinking the same as me. Athletic and beautiful people with fish tails, flowing hair and beautiful singing voices. Stories of mermaids go back millennia across countries and across time and the following info comes from an article on the Royal Museum's Greenwich website which goes into a lot more detail if mermaids are your thing. A mermaid is a mythical sea creature with the torso of a woman and a fish tail instead of legs. The word mermaid comes from the Old English word mer which means sea and maid which refers to a girl or young woman. One of the earliest mermaid legends appeared in Syria around 1000 BCE when the goddess Atargatis dove into a lake to take the form of a fish. As the gods there would not allow her to give up her great beauty, only her bottom half became a fish and she kept her top, top half in human form. Archaeologists have found her figure on ancient temples, statues and coins. The earliest depiction of a mermaid in England can be found in a normal ch- Norman chapel in Durham Castle, built around 1078 by Saxons. You can imagine the excitement caused by a genuine mermaid being found in 1842 by a chap named Dr. J. Griffin. Being a doctor and supposed member of the British Lyceum of Natural History, he and his catch lured in the press. He claimed to have found the mermaid near the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific. Thinking ahead, he had been sending letters back to New York, telling the press all about it, and when he got back, they were there waiting with bated breath. Okay, I'll stop. Anyway, they were like, oh my god, it's an actual mermaid. You might have heard of P.T. Barnum, who was an American showman who, who founded the Barnum and Bailey Circus and was an all-round bad guy. There is a You Are Dead to Me podcast episode all about him and his shitty exploitative deeds if you want to hear more. It is a good one. Anywho, he was like, Dr. Griffin, you should totally let me put this on show at my museum, it would be great. And Dr. Griffin was like, nah. Being a sneaky bugger, Barnum told the papers that they could have exclusive use of a woodcut featuring three fit mermaids splashing about. These were published, and at the same time Barnum put out 10,000 of his own pamphlets featuring the mermaids, and mermaid fever hit the city. Along with mermaid fever, people could not stop talking about what was named the Fiji Mermaid, and so Dr Griffin was like, fine, stick it on show for a week. Dr. Griffin attended and lectured about natural history with his insistence on the authenticity of this mermaid being that of course there are mermaids. Each land mammal has its sea-dwelling counterpart, sea lion, sea dog, whatever that is, and sea horse. A sea person is perfectly understandable, you silly goose. I don't know if you've seen a picture of this mermaid, but I'll assume you haven't and describe it to you. Think of a fish tail, a nice chunky one. Then think of the torso of a small monkey, smash them together, and you've got the Fiji mermaid. In fact, that literally is what you've got, because that's what the thing was. People weren't expecting to see something so grotesque, though. As I said earlier, all of the adverts in the papers and in Barnum's leaflet show the little mermaid-type images. Imagine turning up thinking you're going to see Ariel and seeing some god-awful mummified mummy torso sewed onto a fish. It gets worse, though. Remember how I said Barnum was a shit? There was no Dr Griffin, and no British Lyceum of Natural History, either. This supposed Dr. Griffin was a bloke called Levi Lyman. Lyman, as if you could make that up. And they were partners in crime and planned the whole shebang. He actually rented the mermaid from a chap called Moses Kimball. It was originally made in 1810 by a Japanese fisherman who regularly created objects like this as a traditional art form. The mermaid lived on for a while, touring the US and London, until it seemed to disappear from the records sometime in the 1880s. Okay, this next one made me laugh. Picture this. You're in Loveland, Colorado in 1895 and you see an advert in the paper for a street fair. You'd heard of Farmer Joe Swan before and he'd been featured locally in the papers already because he was an absolute banger at growing potatoes. He had grown over 70 different types so you're looking forward to seeing what fancy taters he's got in store for you. You look at the picture and it's only the biggest potato that you've ever seen. Our mate Farmer Swan is holding a potato the size of a sack of firewood on his shoulder. Well, rightly so, this caused an absolute sensation across the US and internationally too. Scientific American magazine even published it, adding to its supposed authenticity, calling the story a mammoth potato. (laughs) Swan was being inundated with calls to see his massive potato. I know that if I had grown a potato the size of a pig... I'd be charging people a quid of time to have a gander. Well, you know where this is going? Because there was no mammoth potato. It was a hoax created by the farmer and a W.L. Thorndike, editor of the Loveland Reporter. To make the photo, he enlisted the services of photographer Adam H. Talbot. Talbot took a photo of a potato and enlarged it to massive size. He then cut out a wooden board, the size and shape of this enlarged image, and he attached the photograph to the board. Finally, he posed Swan, holding this giant foe, tato, on his shoulder. He'd apparently put Swan up to it, thinking it would be obvious that it was a joke. The thing is, people want to believe in giant potatoes, so it's unsurprising that this one took off. Swan had been telling people that the potato wasn't real and it had been a joke all along, but people love potatoes, don't they? So they didn't believe him. He decided to shake the story up a bit, and he basically had to tell everyone that the mammoth spud was nicked. Scientific American was not happy about being made to look like idiots, so published a reaction in the magazine later, stating, The picture of the mammoth potato we published on page 199 proves to be a gross fraud, being a contrivance of the photographer who imposed upon hers as well as others. An artist who lends himself to such methods of deception may be ranked as a thoroughbred knave. <laughs> to be shunned by everybody. Oh my God, the venom in this retort. You, sir... <laughs> Or a thoroughbred knave. I feel like this is the most wholesome hoax in the podcast. Think of how many crisps you could make. In 1912, it was claimed that the Titanic sank. (laughs) Ha, just kidding. We are going to hang out in 1912 for a bit because it was said to be the year that the missing link, quote-unquote, between apes and humans was found. According to Charles Dawson, it was anyway. He was an amateur archaeologist who was named by a local paper, the Wizard of Sussex, for the incredibly important archaeological finds he was lucky enough to discover throughout his career, hobby, whatever. He found teeth from a previously unknown species of mammal, later named Plagialo- Pl- Plagialax dorsoni, in his honour. He found a unique Roman statuette made of cast iron, a unique hafted stone axe, and a unique ancient timber boat. He investigated toes petrified inside flint nodules, sea serpents in the English Channel, hidden horns in cart horses, and a hybrid species said to be a mix between a goldfish and a carp. Yes, all his finds were one of a kind, not found by anyone else. Not suspicious. You may have heard of his most famous discovery, which became known as the Piltdown Man. While Dawson was digging in Piltdown Common in Sussex, he found what appeared to be fragments of a cranium, jawbone and other bits and bobs that appeared to be part human and part great ape. He took the specimens to the British Museum and it was confirmed that Dawson had found the remains of a previously unknown species of hominin that could be the missing link between humans and apes. Additional excavations on the site revealed a few more artefacts such as stone tools and fragments of other animals. The Piltdown Man specimens and artefacts were accepted into the scientific community. Over the next five decades, more remains of Neanderthals, Homo erectus and Australopithecus made Piltdown Man look a bit weird, and he somehow didn't fit in with the others. So in the early 1950s, they cracked open the bones and had another look at it with a big old microscope. I'm just kidding, I don't know what they did, but it was science stuff. Turns out the school cranium came from a 600-year-old human, this was paired with an orangutan jawbone and the tooth of a chimpanzee. Dawson had even chemically stained them and filed the teeth down to make them seem older. What a little shitbag! This bloke, right, basically spent his time just faking shit, making all of the people looking for stuff feel like crap, and everyone was like, what a great guy. He died like 50 years before anyone realised he was an absolute liar. What a git! I'd like to think that no one would get away with it nowadays because we have such good technology, but you never know. Trust no one! If you've seen the film Fairy Tale A True Story, then you'll know about this next one. It's a pretty excellent film made in the late 90s to depict a pretty elaborate hoax where two young girls fooled the world. So much so that in 1920, Arthur Conan Doyle, of Sherlock Holmes author fame, was fully on board with it. In 1917, nine-year-old Frances Griffiths and her cousin, 16-year-old Elsie Wright, were living in Cottingley, Bradford, in Yorkshire, and having what appeared to be a rather magical time. On a warm summer's day, Frances came home traipsing her wet shoes through the house after she'd been playing in the stream at the bottom of the garden. After being told off by her mother, she said, "Huh, "'I go to see the fairies!' The girls convinced Elsie's dad to lend them a camera so they could prove that they were indeed hanging out with some woodland fairies. Let's be honest, this is the absolute dream, isn't it? The girls came back claiming to have taken a picture of the fairies. Elsie's dad, Arthur, who was an enthusiastic photographer, had a home studio to set about developing what the girls must have surely staged. The image, however, now a very famous one, shows Frances resting her head on her hand gazing past the photographer. In the foreground are four fairies dancing and playing what looks like a big flute. Arthur knew that Elsie had been hanging out in his photography studio and did not believe that the picture was genuine. He just had no idea how the girls had achieved it. A couple of months later, the girls came back with another photo, this time showing Elsie playing with a gnome. Not the kind you find in gardens, though. This is a proper forest gnome that looks like he's got wings, a human head, and a rather flattering pair of tights. He's also wearing Krakows, which if you listen to episode 1 on Shoes Across the Ages, you'll know were long pointy shoes. The photographs were examined by a photographic expert, Harold Snelling, who confirmed them as authentic images of whatever was in front of the camera. That basically meant he didn't have to say, Yes, fairies exist! Clever. The images appeared in a spiritualist magazine where they were seen by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was big into the spiritual world. He was about to write a piece on fairies for the Christmas edition of the Strand magazine and asked Arthur and Elsie for permission to use the images. Three more images were taken, with the last one being fairies and their sunbath in 1920. I can really understand the readiness to believe in fairies, because wouldn't it be a wonderful thing and a magical thought? Pair that with the fact that Europe was nearing the end of the devastating Great War, and people just wanted something to cling on to, I suppose. The debate about the authenticity went on well into the 1960s, but they were not completely debunked until their 80s, where the editor, when the editor of the British Journal of Photography undertook an investigation and sadly concluded that they were fakes staged using paper cutouts held up by hatpins. That's if you believe him anyway. In 1983, Elsie must have been asked by the fairies to lie and say they were fakes, though Francis maintained that the final photograph was genuine. I do believe in fairies, I do, I do! I've got to be honest, my absolute favourite host from today's episode is the giant potato. Because it's just so stupid, isn't it? The fact that people got so excited about a giant potato that it made it into scientific America is just brilliant. I should have just talked about the potato the whole episode. But you might have got a bit bored. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout out in a future episode. Leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I've set up a coffee account and I've popped the link in the show notes. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create and I do everything myself, so if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Five star reviews this week, here we go! As Asiksu says, Easy listen and informative. Love it. It's easily digestible, interesting history. The things you never thought to ask and more. Vikram Baliga says, I don't know how I'm just reviewing this show, but Across the Ages is one of my very favourite podcasts. Natalie is an absolute delight and perfectly manages to blend her fantastic sense of humour with thoroughly researched content. It's a fascinating and incredibly interesting look at history, and it should definitely be in your podcast rotation. Thank you guys, and if you're interested in hearing Vikram's podcast, it's called Plantropology, and it's all about plants. So I'll pop that in the show notes too. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at _Across the Ages_ or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.